Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. Um, I've been married for 15 years uh, to my wonderful wife, and I'm really grateful for Leanne, but I still consider myself a bit of an amateur uh, as a husband, and uh, so uh, I have a lot to learn. So I'm not speaking these things from a standpoint that I've got it all figured out. So in fact, there's, uh, I could, if you were to examine our lives right now, we would probably confess to you that there are a lot of things we're still struggling through. So um, please pray for us. I do appreciate that Bill uh, invited the church to pray for us, and, uh, and I'd like to resound that sentiment by saying please pray for Bill and Beth as well as they help us lead this church and shepherd this church, um, that God would continue to bless their rich and wonderful marriage as well. Um, I'd like to begin today by reading this passage with you and then um, praying and then we'll kind of walk through it together. So let's start by reading. I actually would like to invite you to back up with me to chapter 2 verse 21. I think we need this section in order to interpret chapter 3. So let's start in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even uh, if any of them are, excuse me, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us instruction and that you've given us direction. Thank you that you are helping us and that you are leading us in our salvation. We thank you first and foremost for the the riches of our salvation, that you have restored our relationship with you and that we are ultimately all under your leadership and your authority. You lead us and you shepherd and guard us. God, we praise you for that. And Lord, as we we serve and live together with our, our wives and with our husbands, 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to honor you in those relationships. As you have instructed to us that this is an illustration to the world of Christ and the church. I pray that our relationships with each other would illustrate well the grace of God. And I pray that you would help us uh, to hear these words this morning and to be able to apply them to our own lives. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to... um, Uh, First, before we really walk back through these, Bill read a section out of the uh, Baptist Faith and Message, which is our uh, statement of faith for the Baptist Church uh, regarding uh, marriage. And I'd like to read another section out of that this morning before we begin. It says, The husband and wife are of equal worth before God. Since both are created in God's image, the marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the leadership of Christ. She is being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. I really uh, thought that that was fairly well stated uh, in regard to the equality, the spiritual equality between men and women, which is something that I'd like to emphasize as we walk through these verses today, because there are differences between men and women. And there is a God-ordained structure in the home and structure in the relationship of husbands and wives. But something that we're going to kind of explore is that, and I think it's good for us to remember, especially in the context of 1 Peter here, we've seen examples of different authority structures. We know that some of these authority structures are ordained by God, and some of these are constructed by man. And God is giving the church, the new believers in Christ, instructions on how to live as Christians within all of these structures. In the, especially when we look at verses 18 through 20 of chapter 2, where it talks about the master-slave relationship, which is not a relationship that God condones or encourages. But it is a reality of many of our cultures. And if someone finds themselves in a relationship like that, Here's how we are to act as Christians within those constructs. Now, with that in mind, the marriage relationship has a God-ordained structure, but it also has added to it cultural structure, and it also has religious structure that's been built into that. Some of, some of those additions to God's ordained structure are not good, it's even within the religious communities. Sometimes God's word has been taken out of context and been used to build additional structure for the marriage relationship that places emphasis on the roles of women and the roles of men in those relationships that are not godly. And it turns into forms of abuse. And so we're going to kind of take a look at some of that today. But before we do, I would just like to, uh, because much of what I have to read, to share with you today is just verse by verse through this section, explanation of what Peter says. Um, So I've given myself about three minutes per point. I really wish I had a little timer up here, a little buzzer, because I'm not sure I'm going to get through it. So we'll see. I may get through half of it, and then we'll have to see if we get back to it next week. But I'd like to just begin by reading what uh, Bill shared with us at the beginning of his sermon last week. He gave five points 
These are his, his opinion uh, from personal experience, practical applications for marriages. I thought it'd be really good for us all to hear these again. I really enjoyed being reminded of those, and uh, I just wanted you to hear them again as we get started. These are five things. They're just practical applications for marriages. Both partners should be totally committed to Christ. Both should be committed to one another. Both committed to living the Christian life. Both committed to practicing biblical principles in their marriage. And both committed to, acting, to active involvement in a local church. I think all of those things are really excellent qualities that, that will help us in our relationships with our husbands and wives um, especially walking in, in Christ-like character with one another and walking with the body of Christ with each other because, um, as you all know, sometimes we go through difficulties and we need our Christian family to pray for us through those, encourage, through those difficulties and to even come alongside us and give us wise counsel. I think those are really good things to remember as we walk through this together. So let's dive in to 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Uh, the first thing I'd like to note is the phrase, in the same way. And you'll probably notice that right here at the beginning of verse 1, Peter says, in the same way, you wives be submissive. But also, he says at the very beginning of verse 7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. Now, I believe both of those are a reference back to verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2, which is about Jesus. It's Christ's example. Peter shared that Jesus's example, Jesus's life and how he lived and how he died and how he brought salvation to us and the attitude that he brought into all of that, these serve as an example for us to follow. And he used that as an example for us to follow in all of the authority constructs that he already explained, the, uh, um, the human institutions, whether to kings and subjects or to masters and slaves, these are the attitudes that we are to bring into those relationships. And then it goes right into husbands and wives as well. So specifically for wives, he says, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Now, before we kind of discuss the idea of submission, let's look again at a few of those verses from chapter 2. He says, you, he says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no th threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now notice the relationship that Jesus has, first of all, with his father. He was being obedient to the will of his father, and he was entrusting himself to the will of his father. Now that word entrust, I think, is a really good starting point for us understanding what submission means. Submission is not Lord, it's not submission or subjugation in a master-slave type relationship. It is an entrusting to someone, uh, to someone else in their leadership because you're trusting that they will lead you well. And in this case, Jesus was entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously, to the one who was going to do right by Jesus. He judges righteously, he does righteously, and he acts in a righteous way. And so then, as a result, he suffered for our sake, but he says, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in, in return. While suffering, he uttered no threat. So even when he was enduring difficulty, he did not return evil 
for evil and he lived a sinless life in that process. And I think in that same way, wives are being encouraged to submit to their husbands in a sinless fashion without returning evil for evil because there will certainly be times when your husbands will do evil things and you will be offended and you will be hurt and the Lord is encouraging you to not return that evil for evil but that entrusting oneself I think really gives us a help for understanding what submission means. So a couple of things about submission uh, is to note in scripture is that whenever you see a, a, re- a reference to women submitting to, to men in a biblic- as a biblical instruction, it's not for the purpose of women submitting to all men. All men are not in authority over all women. Uh, so God has ordained that husbands have a, um, have a certain authority over their wives and their homes, but that authority is limited underneath the authority of God and ultimately must submit to the authority of God and answer to the authority of God and the judgment of God. So that is a very lofty and um, difficult position of responsibility for those husbands. But that submission is limited. So, um, and it should also be voluntary. Nowhere do you see in here, I think Bill made this point when he preached this a couple weeks ago, that, um, that men do not have the right to demand submission of their wives. This is something that God instructs women to do, and it is something that is their responsibility to do as an act of obedience to the Lord, but it is not the man's position to demand it of his wife. Um, he is not to subjugate his wife. Instead, the only instructions men receive are to serve and also to be subject to their wives in a general sense, and we'll come back to that. Hopefully, if, we, if I can preserve my time, we'll get back to that as well. So... Um, So submission was also not to cause less value or less worth for the woman. Now, we know that culture has applied less value and less worth to women over um, over the centuries, over the years. In fact, since the beginning of time, it would seem that because of the obvious differences between men and women physically, that it has caused women to be vulnerable to a certain number of abuses and a certain form of subjugation within society. And so as a result, even here in the first century, the Greco-Roman culture viewed women, um, they viewed women with a, uh, uh, with a different um, type of respect than they did men. And we're going to kind of come back to that in a second. But the marriage, marriage and the relationship between husband and wife are God's illustration of Christ in the church. I think it's important to recognize before we go too far that submission is a command in Scripture. Uh, Ephesians 5 speaks of it, Colossians 3 speaks of it, 1 Peter 3 speaks of it, and we see it illustrated throughout the women of the Old Testament, and, um, and even Sarah, as we read here, uh, uh, Peter uses Sarah as an example, and we'll discuss that in a second as well. So it is a command that has to be wrestled with whether we like it or not. And I think, um, uh, and I'm just going to pause for a quick second, hopefully, uh, if you did a study on feminism throughout history, Um, There have been certain aspects of the feminist movement, especially at its beginning, that were probably good because it pointed out things about the way people treated women that were not good and that certainly were not biblical. And it brought to attention, to the attention of many people, the idea that women are valuable and equal in many ways and deserve the same rights as men. 
But then, of course, it has evolved and it has changed over the years and has become a lot of different things. So you do the research on that. I encourage you to do some research on that. There's obviously some really damaging things that have come about as a result of it. But also, um, the feminist movement has also pointed out this passage of Scripture as a difficult point, um, that as um, uh, one of the places in Scripture that would be an arguing point that... Uh, Scripture is to some extent outdated because it's to some extent misogynistic and it enables men to oppress women because this scripture has been and many at many times read inappropriately. So it's good to remember that um, that movement has caused us to have pay a good attention to women. But what I would contend is that God and Jesus Christ and the apostles have been saying it from the beginning. That women are valuable, made in the image of God and equal to men, but yet there are different roles and a different structure for that relationship. So we're going to kind of walk through what some of that looks like. So the first point, um, you know, in, this, in the same way women are to, in the same way as Christ, imitate the attitude of Christ, um, entrusting themselves to their husbands, serving with that attitude. Uh, and then also we see this phrase that comes next where he says, so that... If any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So you have this, um, this general instruction for wives to all of their husbands, whether they be, be believers or unbelievers, that they are to submit. But in this particular instance, he's saying that even if some of them are unbelievers, you should submit to them specifically with this quality, that your obedience and your submission and the quality of your respectful and chaste behavior will speak louder than words. Now, some people have misinterpreted this as to say that women should be quiet, but this does not imply that at all. In fact, when this is a reference to the gospel, this is a reference to preaching the gospel to those who are lost. We know if you were to do a greater study on the preaching of the gospel, that the preaching of the gospel requires words. You've heard it said that, you know, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, which is a, this, this is a honest, it sounds good, but it's really, it's really incorrect. It can't happen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to create faith in the heart of an individual and regeneration unto salvation. The Spirit of God uses His Word. So it implies that the wife has already been speaking the truth in love. But he is encouraging the wives to allow their behavior to support their testimony. To allow their behavior and that chaste and respectful behavior. Chaste means pure, meaning that she's faithful. She's not running around on him. She's not leading an impure and unholy lifestyle um, while proclaiming to be a Christian in this relationship, especially if she is in a relationship with a non-believer. She's preaching the gospel to him in hopes that he will come to know Jesus Christ. So let your behavior mirror what you say is what she is being encouraged to do in this instance. So it's not an instruction to be quiet or to be silent. Um, it's a simple statement about the quality of character that will support the truth that you've already been speaking. So in, in, as a missional scripture, I believe Peter's actually empowering women to be part of the gospel movement, even if they are stuck in a position where in the Greco-Roman culture, they might have been subjugated into a position of silence, where they are stuck in this, this relationship that should be a 
godly picture of Christ in the church, a husband and wife relationship, but instead it actually looks more like a master-slave type relationship, and she's been subjugated into silence. Here Peter is saying you still have the power to preach the gospel, even if by just your behavior. He is empowering women. So he sees the value of women, he sees the importance of women, and he sees that God can use women to bring salvation to their lost husbands. Now, some people have argued, um, and, and I've heard it this unfortunately so many times, when a woman has uh, come out of an abusive situation to the church for help, um, pastors and people within the church often will come to this passage of Scripture and say, you need to go back and be a better wife love your husband better, make more love to him, and do better for him, and he will treat you better. And hopefully, through your behavior, you will lead him to salvation. Well, I believe that that is not the message that Peter is preaching here at all. That's not the context. However, um, I also would like to point out that even in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy, there's a passage of Scripture um, I'd actually cut this part out. I'm going to tell you anyway. So Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, uh, there's an instruction to the people of God that if, if a slave was to escape and come to them, that they were not to return the slave back to their masters. They were to set them free. And I believe that in, in this context, that if a woman is being treated in an abusive fashion and she comes to the church for help, and she is being treated more like a slave rather than revered as a wife, I believe that it's cruel for the church to send her back and just say, be a better wife in hopes that he will come to be a Christian. I think in many ways, the church should always stand between the abused and the abuser, and the church should never stand between the abuser and the law, as we've also been encouraged in this passage that the law prohibits um, abuse, and we are to honor and submit to the authorities of the land as well. So the church should never stand between the law and an abuser. The church should be the first one to bring the abuser to the law. And I think that there's some freedom that people will find and help that people will find in the church rather than further abuse if these things would be read more appropriately. Um, now, again, I, I, I want to make it clear I'm not condoning divorce. Um, I believe that God still hates divorce. It's not his way. But we also see how man corrupts things and breaks things and abuses people. Man takes his ability and his uh, and his his responsibility and turns it into an opportunity for um, uh, taking advantage of someone that's weaker, and that is uh, what God is prohibiting in these passages. So, he tells women, he says, "I want to encourage you to make sure that your behavior matches up with your testimony, but it is not a silencing of women and is not an encouragement for women to remain in abusive situations." Um, so then next he says this, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality, um, but let the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So let it be the hidden person of the heart. That's what I was trying to say. Anyways. All right. So adornment is what you put on. It's how you... Um, it's how you dress, so to speak. It's usually outward. So and in this case, he says, let your adornment not, or your adornment must not be merely external. And that means only on the outside, only on the outside. And that, um, and this again is not a prohibition against braiding the hair, wearing jewelry, putting on dresses. 
All right, he's not saying that I think, I think the ladies have been teasing me for a couple weeks because they knew that I was coming to this passage. They've been giving me a really hard time. You have to know. So, Bill, I appreciate you asking them to email me what they, what they uh, thought about submission. Um, I, did get, um, I did get one response, so um, I do appreciate that response, and it was a good one. Um, but the women have kind of been collaborating. They were all threatening to um, you know, braid their hair and put on gold jewelry and sit on the front row and give me the evil eye the whole time. But, um, but uh, they're, you know, anyways, um, I do think, you know, this is, this obviously, again, has been used as a scripture to kind of say, hey, women shouldn't do these things. But I don't think that's what Peter's saying because we need to continue to read and we need to read the rest of this. He's saying it shouldn't be only on the outside, but it should be, he said, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Notice that word imperishable. He's comparing the imperishable with the perishable. He's saying everything that is only on the outside is perishable. He's not necessarily saying it's bad. He's just saying it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last long. But he says the quality that you should really hold on to and that you should invest in as wives is the hidden person of the heart. It's the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And these are precious in the sight of God. And I think the really important thing to note about this is that he said these are precious in the sight of God, not in the sight of your husband. He's saying, I want you to pursue these things, the hidden person of the heart, not because your husband says so, not because your husband demands it, not because it's going to make your husband happy, but, but because it's pleasing to God. You do these things for the Lord. And again, this is not for the husband to demand because it's not for us. It's for the Lord. So this submission that the Lord is encouraging is um, this, this entrusting oneself to one's husband. It comes with character. It comes with chaste and respectful behavior. It comes with this precious quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now we have to kind of explore what that means. What is a gentle and quiet spirit? So obviously gentleness, that is, uh, that is meekness, um, which meekness is strength. Uh, partnered with self-control and humility. Um, that's, and Jesus was meek. You know, he was obviously, um, he, was, he was God. He was eternally strong. But he partnered that with self-control and with humility so that he could serve us and sacrifice for our, on our behalf. And uh, that quality is precious in the sight of God. And then he uses the word quiet. And again, a lot of people have interpreted that to mean that women should be quiet. Now, there are uh, a number of Greek words for quiet in the New Testament uh, that mean to silence or to be quiet or to make somebody be quiet. And those are used in a lot of places in the New Testament. But in this case, that is not the Greek word that is here. This Greek word is only used twice in the New Testament. And it means to be peaceable, to be peaceable, or it brings with it the, con the concept of tranquility. It's peacefulness that leads to tranquility. And that's the quality that he's saying that the home needs, especially partnered with um, an impetuous and brutish man who's leading the home. You know, there needs to be this peaceable, peaceable partnership that goes along with the leadership of this home. So another, the other passage is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where it encourages all believers, men and women, to... Uh, pray for their leadership for the sake of a tranquil and quiet life. We're praying for all of our leadership in hopes that we will be able to have tranquil and quiet lives with our families where the governments will leave us alone. 
where we will have a peace, peaceable and tranquil life where we can be obedient to God freely and openly honoring him the way we are led to do with our families. And so we'll pray, pray for our leadership in that fashion. He is not encouraging us to pray for our leadership so that we can all be told to be quiet. He's encouraging us to pray for tranquility and peace. So with that in mind, that's how that word is used. So I just wanted to point that out because when he tells ladies here, he says with the, the, uh, to let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. He's saying, I want you to have a, a gentle, gentleness and a spirit of peacefulness in your submission and in your entrusting of yourself to the leadership of your husband and in, as you work together to lead your home. And I like to use the word cooperation in terms of the marriage relationship because, because it, is not, it, is, it is a team effort even though there is leadership and there, there are leaders and there are followers. It is a team effort. There is a cooperation and there is communication that takes place. It's not just man saying, this is my way. It's my way or the highway. It's the man and the, the husband and the wife collaborating together, working together to lead the home in the direction of the will of God. But when it comes to decisions that are sometimes difficult to make, it falls on the shoulders of the husband to make the most difficult decisions for the family because he bears the responsibility for the outcome. So then um, you see this phrase this passage here in verse 5 where he says for this way in former times holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands so first he uses the illustration of women of the old testament in general so apparently it was well known that women would submit to their husbands and they these are the women in that phrase who hoped in God meant they were believers these were God's people these were the children of uh, Abraham Isaac and Jacob that's what that is a reference to meaning that God's people had a tradition and had an instruction and had the, um, the, uh, the reputation for submitting to their husbands and adorning themselves with these precious qualities. And then he says this, he uses the, uh, in verse 6, he uses the example of Sarah. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, again, these, again... I, I don't know if you're like me when I read these words. I'm not the wife, but I kind of bristle when I read a lot of these words. Quiet, obedience, Lord. You know, like those things sound like those are extreme words. And if it's not, if we're not careful, we can easily take those words and turn this into a master-slave relationship, which is not what God wants. And that's what it sounds like. You know, obey me. You know, and again, this is not, this is not man's responsibility to demand obedience from his wife. This is the wife's responsibility to hear God saying you need to obey him, obey God, and then submit. With a, It's a form of obedience. That obedience here that is a reference to Sarah's relationship with Abraham was her willingness to submit because she recognized God's call for her to submit. She was being obedient to the Lord. But she called him Lord, which was an indication to Abraham that she was willing to submit. In fact, What's interesting here is there's actually no biblical record of her calling Abraham Lord to his face. Um, the only, there's only one spot in the Old Testament where she calls him Lord, and it's when she was having a conversation with God. And she called Abraham her Lord. And uh, and, and that conversation, it really wasn't a good conversation. She was throwing shade on the fact that God had just told her she was going to have a baby, and she was laughing about it. All right, So she really wasn't too happy about this whole scenario. 
and she called her husband Lord. And so now there's other extra biblical traditions that kind of record the, some other instances where she might have called her husband Lord. I think it probably was a tradition for women to have called her, their husbands Lord, but it wasn't supposed to be um, a representation of a master-slave relationship. It was, again, supposed to represent just a signifying that we recognize his authority and we submit to that. And that's really what that was all about. And then she says, calling him Lord, and you've become her children if you do what is right. And what that simply means is, that Abraham is the father, is considered to be the father of all of God's people. Sarah, then, by, by, uh, by nature, because she is his wife, is considered to be the mother of all of God's people. And so since we are children of Abraham and Sarah, then women who submit in this way with these precious qualities, the meekness and the spirit of peacefulness and the chaste and respectful behavior and imitating the attitude of Christ— these will identify you as one of God's children. In fact, I think it's becoming, even in our culture, where, um, where you know, we don't, live in, for, we don't live in an Islamic community, which subjugates their, their women. Um, in fact, we live in a predominantly feminist and postmodern society, where it's, uh, you know, the argument would be that, uh, that there are no differences between men and women, and there should be no treatment of when women and men any differently than one another, um, and it gets really confusing. So in our culture, for any woman to act like this, it is going to set you apart as somebody different. Um, it's going to set you apart, hopefully, for the purpose of being recognized as a child of God because of, because of the godliness in that relationship. And by God's grace, we, the prayer would be that the men would also be, be, would also be treating this relationship with as much respect. Um, and representing Christ in their role as well. So he says, he kind of lands that section without, uh, with this statement without being frightened by any fear, which simply means that um, she's not allowing fear to drive the decisions that she makes or to cause her to rebel against the, the authority structure that God has placed her under. And so she is allowing trust to uh, be part of that relationship that she has with her husband. So trust has to be part of submission. Submission doesn't work if there's not trust. Um, and a husband can't expect submission if there's not trust. Um, it just doesn't work if the wife doesn't trust her husband. So um, one of the responses that I got from the ladies when asked about what it means to submit to her husband, um, I just kind of put one quote in here and I've, I've actually kind of heard the same sentiment echoed by a number of ladies. This is what she said. I guess I have zero issues submitting to his authority because I know he yields his authority wisely and lovingly and everything he does is for the benefit of not just himself, but for me, our marriage and our family. So she felt free to submit and she was not afraid of submitting because her husband has been so respectful and has been so good about leading in a Christ-like and a godly fashion. So she does not live in fear. And I believe that that is absolutely critical. If we're going to understand submission at all, then men have to live the Christ-like uh, life that they are called to live in addition. It can't work um, perfectly when it's one-sided. So that's something that's incredibly important. So before I move on to the next, I just wanted to remind the ladies that these are some of the applications I pulled out. So submission is, is cooperating or entrusting oneself 
uh, with the attitude of Christ, serving as Christ did with chaste and respectful behavior, meekness, and a spirit of peacefulness and trust. I think those things are qualities that Peter points out. And then we have this passage in verse 7 where he says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, just got to go back to that statement in the same way. Let's go back to that Christ example as we go, for, go through the, the husband's example here. Let's look at Christ's example starting in verse 24. He says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Now notice the transition in that example of Christ. First he was talking about how the Father was leading him. And now he's talking about how he is leading the church. And since the relationship between husbands and wives is an illustration of Christ in the church, husbands are an illustration of Christ being the head of the church. Husbands are the head of the home, the head of the, the wife in this, in this illustration. And so he's, he's showing what it looks like to lead. And this is how he led. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we were healed. He saw our greatest need and he sacrificed himself in order to meet that need and to serve our greatest need so that we could know salvation and so that we could be right with the Father. And notice the outcome. He says, for by his wounds you were healed for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. He returned us to the authority of the Father. He saved us so that we could be shepherd and shepherded and guarded by our Father in heaven. So for a husband to lead his wife is to lay down his life and sacrifice and serve and lead in such a way that we are able to understand the needs of our wives, meet the needs of our wives in order to enable them to be obedient to the Father as he has called them to be obedient to him as individual people who are responsible for their own souls. That we do not command them. We do not lord over our wives we actually cannot save them we cannot lead them to salvation we can only enable them to continue being obedient to the lord as he calls them to obey and we can lead by example and we can lead by creating an environment of freedom where our wives can be obedient to the lord as he's called them does that make some kind of sense so so I see that example in Christ. So he says, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives. Now notice that phrase, live with, that's not actually, he didn't say master your wives. He didn't say lord over your wives. He said to live with them. And that Greek word is specifically a word that's only used for marriage. And it means to cohabitate. It is to live alongside someone. It can be used for either the husband or the wife in the relationship meaning that this is a cooperative relationship. And whatever it takes for you to make this marriage work, whatever it means for you to be married to one another, you need to live with your wives in an understanding way. It requires being understanding. So as you live with your wives, as you um, communicate with your wives, as you um, make decisions, as you... Try to come to agreements over what to do for the children or what to do for your jobs or what to do for vacation time or school or work or budgeting and whatever it may be as you communicate and work together. He gives us this quality, the quality of understanding, and he tells us to have it. We need to be understanding towards our wives. Now, that word is katagnosis, 
And that's, that's two Greek words. You don't really need to remember those. The first one means cognitive. The second one means knowledge. So with cognitive knowledge, meaning men, we have to use our brains in order to make our relationships work with our wives. So the idea that we have to read the minds of our wives might not be too far from <laughs> biblical interpretation. All right. So, but he is saying that, you know, being married is not just a physical act, but it's an act that requires, um, we, it's something that we must know how to do properly and how to do in a Christ-like fashion. We have to understand our wives and we have to understand God and we have to understand his instructions for us and his instructions for them in order for us to know how to help our families and help our wives along the way. So we have to then, that means we have to have knowledge of her needs, her wants, her differences, her expectations, her abilities, and her weaknesses. We have to actually get to know her. That requires communication. That means that we have to listen in order to live with our wives. It's an instruction to apply that kind of understanding to all that it means to peaceably live with your wives. So that means, men, we do have to do a little bit of mental work. We have to study our wives. We have to get to know them so that we can know how to best serve them. And then he tells us a little bit about why. Um, it's because we live with someone as with someone weaker. And I'm going to come to that. He says that, you know, um, he calls us to peaceably live with our lives and we need to lead them in a way that enables her to follow Christ. Um, but she is someone who is weaker in a sense. Now, this is, um, this is a difficult thing to, again, to interpret. Um, now, first of all, in Greco-Roman culture, this is the first century culture, they treated women as inferior in terms of physical strength, intellectual ability, moral firmness, social status, and their freedoms were limited. All right, basically meaning that they devalued women. They thought they were so much weaker that they couldn't even make moral decisions on their own, um, which is not accurate according to what God says about how he created human beings in his image. And we are equally um, human in that same sense. All right, so then also the Jews took some of these, uh, these concepts and then applied un. Um, uh, inappropriate laws to women that would that forced women to kind of be subjugated into these relationships as well and not treated as they should have been. Uh, again, in the same sense that a lot of the Pharisees misinterpreted God's law and always took things to an extreme and to a wrong uh, to a wrong ends. And so God's law was kind of twisted and broken, and I think that goes way back into the Old Testament. In fact, even if you were to look at the example of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham did not always treat Sarah with respect and with honor. In fact, he did not always um, honor her as a wife like he should have. He treated her a little bit more like a slave when he called her his sister and allowed her to be married to another man. Yeah. I mean, that was not good treatment of your wife. I don't think that, you know, I think it's good for us to remember sometimes these Old Testament patriarchs are, are the fathers of our faith are not necessarily all good people to emulate. All right. In fact, all of them are not. They're all sinful. And you see the examples of that all the way through. They're types of Christ, pictures of Christ. We emulate Christ, not Abraham. So, and Sarah, likewise, there were some instances in which she did not show the greatest respect for Abraham. So there were some issues, obviously, in their marriage. They probably needed some marriage counseling after all the things that they went through. All right, with Hagar, you know, another woman, and kids by that woman. 
and all the drama that took place. That's not what God intends for a marriage relationship. Um, but there is, uh, there is this authority structure that's built in, and I do believe that we see in Scripture this indication that women are very different than men. Obviously, there are biological differences between women and men, and women are biologically and in general weaker than men in physical strength. And you can, you can argue that all you want, but since for thousands of years, women have been subjugated because of that. Women have been suppressed and pushed down and abused and pushed into really bad scenarios because they are vulnerable in their physical weaknesses. And then as a result of some of the authority structure that's been perverted by man and his sinfulness, it's been worsened by religion that has kind of painted a broad brush over it as if to say that it's okay. And I think that's why it's really important to understand as men who are applying the scripture to scripture to hear this part here, he's saying you're living with your wives as with someone weaker. So, um, so we are to value women as not less than men. They are to be honored. So Paul's weaker vessel com- comment here um, most likely is a reference to physical biological differences in addition to the fact that they have been commanded by God to submit, which means that they are voluntarily placing themselves in a vulnerable position. So we're not demanding that they submit, but they are going to voluntarily submit because they're being obedient to God, which makes them vulnerable. So, So it means that women, they were voluntarily submitting or surrendering their autonomy and submitting to a cooperative relationship. They could live in an autonomous fashion. Even though, well, there are a lot of cultures that will, that will not let women do that. Um, in fact, in the first century, a woman could not live autonomously. She needed a man in order to be cared for. She could not provide for herself because of the limitations of the culture. And we don't see that in America so much. There are pockets, I think, in some religious groups. You read about them if you, if you read about cults and if you read about various religions that pervert a lot of these things. You see where some of that is happening in our culture, but by and large in America, you don't see that a whole lot. So in our context here in the 21st century and in Hogansville, um, if um, I know in my home, if my wife is going to submit, it's going to be voluntarily. I'm not demanding that she submit to me. Now, y'all are welcome to come to me later and say, I think you maybe, you know, you can correct me on that later if you want, but I'm not demanding that she submit to me. And so far, it's working out okay. Um, <laughs> pray for us, but um, but I will say that um, uh, I will say that um, if a woman's going to submit, it's going to be voluntary, and she, it does put her in a vulnerable position. And Peter is saying, "Listen, men, if your wife is going to be in a vulnerable position, you need to understand that weakness and not take advantage of that weakness for your own gain, and for your own personal good, and for your own selfish desires." He's saying you're not to demand of your wife what you want just because you know that she has to say yes. So he's saying, I want you to recognize that and remember that that's not not what we as godly men should be doing. So vulnerability is is the key to remember. So women were in need of being established and honored in society, and uh, they needed men to do that for them and put them in vulnerable positions. Unfortunately, men have a sinful tendency to exploit weakness. And for selfish reasons, uh, women often become subject to intimidation and abuse within a home, even in Christian homes, especially in deeply religious homes. 
that take these scriptures very uh, um, seriously and want to be obedient to God. And then if we're not careful in our desire to be obedient to God, sometimes we inadvertently or even on purpose take that submission of our wives and we turn it into something for personal gain, which is a corruption of this. And it is a, um, uh, it's a, it's a shame. It's a shame. And I believe that men need to approach this with as much humility as women are encouraged to approach submission, uh, which I think is also a point I'd like to add when you see this statement to men that says in the same way, live with your wives. I think it's interesting that it comes after the instruction to wives because we are to, in the same way as we imitate Christ, Christ serves us. And in the same way as our wives serve us, we are to serve them. So we are to serve our, our wives as much as they serve us. So we see this instruction. He says, for in this way, uh, are you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And I think this brings into the relationship God's view of the equality of men and women. Uh, that even though he has created us to be biologically different and to have different roles within culture and society and within the family, we have different roles. Um, and men have the instruction by God to lead and the responsibility for that. Women have an instruction to submit. Um, we have all of those things, but we are still equally heirs of the grace of God. And so he takes us both and he puts us on the same level and says, we are both sinful and in desperate need of salvation. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd both go to hell together. But because of the grace of God, we can both share in the, in, uh, the glories of heaven together. And with that in mind, we see her value. And so I believe he's saying that us as husbands, we need to show her honor. We need to show her how she's valued by us. And then we also need to daily show her how she's valued by God. We need to recognize that she's valued by God more than I could possibly value her. And because she actually does not belong to me, she belongs to God. I need to value her and protect her and take care of her because she belongs to God and he values her. So I am responsible for taking care of someone who is God's child, God's possession. And that should cause a great fear, a great reverence to, to take hold of my responsibility as a husband and cause me to want to lead very carefully and very gently and very sensibly and with considerate, uh, with consideration to her needs and with her, her weaknesses. And I need to show her how she's valued. And by, by treating her that way, I'm going to preach the gospel to her on a daily basis by my behavior and by the way I live and by the way I value her, I'm showing her how she's valued by God. That's how I am being encouraged um, to live. And then he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And I believe that that just simply means that when there's strife in the home, when there's strife in the home, it's very hard to be in right relationship with God, to be in, a, in having a free prayer life with the Lord that is not hindered in your conscience. When you know that men, when you know that you've done wrong to your wives or when there's conflict or where there's strife and, it's, and there's difficulty there, it's hard. And I think he's saying as much as you value peace in your relationship with God, you should value peace in your relationships with your wives. So this is, these are some of the instructions. So 
I know that men only got one verse here, um, and women, you got uh, six, okay? But um, I really feel like there's a lot here for the men to understand in all of these verses, okay? And uh, I, I pulled out five points for the ladies, and I pulled out five points for the men, even though they were all packed in one, all right? <laughs> so um, I do believe that um, uh, Bill shared one scripture that I wanted to read as we close today in Ephesians 5.21. And I think it's really important for, that's a general instruction from Paul to the church where he said, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And I think as much as women are, are instructed by God to submit to their husbands because there's an authority relationship there, men and women alike, we are called by God to subject ourselves to one another. That word subject is the same thing as, submissive, is, is submission. We are to submit to our wives um, in the sense that we are entrusting ourselves with her as well. And that makes it so that we are not going to lord over her, but rather walk with her through life. And, uh, and I know that that can get, it's, there's going to be an aspect of this that will probably always be a mystery. Especially every time you wind up having a fight with your husband or your wife, you're going to realize that this is really hard to follow. And you just, you're going to kind of take all these notes and throw them out the door because you're like, I don't know how to apply all this stuff. But. I would just encourage you all to um, pray for each other, pray for your husbands and wives, um, and uh, pray for yourself that the Lord help you to be obedient as a husband or obedient as a wife, whichever that may be for you. And I'd just like to encourage you to read back through these and see those uh, encouragement that, that encouragements that the Lord has given to all of us. And uh, men, just encourage you again, imitate Christ with your service and with your love and lead carefully, lead carefully. Represent Christ in your leadership. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.